Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Before we get to politics, another expression of our gratitude as you, our best (laughs) public radio listeners in the universe, pushed us over uh, our goal for this pledge drive. Thank you so much. If you didn't manage to make that pledge and still want to, of course, check out IPR.org. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. From IPR News, Ben Kiefer on board today. Rachel Caulfield, professor of political science at Drake University. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ben. Chris Larimer is with us as well, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, of course. Hi, Chris. Hi, Ben. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Chris. (laughs) Plenty to talk about this hour. You can join us. 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Um, um, a New York judge finding Donald Trump uh, yesterday committed fraud for a decade. We'll ask uh, Chris and Rachel what this means, may potentially mean for the Republican mm-hmm. presidential uh, frontrunner. Uh, also, uh, the Senate's move to avert a government shutdown. We heard about that in our IPR news just moments ago. We'll talk about that. Uh, President Biden joining striking auto workers on the picket line in Michigan. Uh, and uh, toward the end of the hour, uh, what to watch for uh, in tonight's GOP uh, debate. But first of all, let's talk about the news that has been breaking this morning. Uh, earlier today, uh, the Democratic Senator Robert Menendez, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, pleaded not guilty to bribery charges. Uh, His wife also entering a not guilty plea for her role in the bribery conspiracy. Uh, Prosecutors say the indictment involves weapon sales and aid to the government of Egypt, a 39-page indictment. Of course, Menendez, longtime powerful Democrat, in exchange uh, for this, the prosecutors say the couple accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars, bars of gold bullion, Mercedes-Benz, uh, bribes given by three New Jersey businessmen who were also charged in this years-long corruption scheme. And, and since that indictment was unsealed last Friday, uh, Menendez has repeatedly denied any wrong doing. Uh, Let's hear from him. This is a a clip from uh, uh, Bob Menendez uh, on Monday of this week, uh, telling reporters during a press conference that he would continue to work on Capitol Hill. He opened his remarks saying that in his 50 years of public service, he's always fought for what is right, and that his advocacy was grounded in his upbringing as the son of Cuban refugees. Uh, Let's listen. Everything I've accomplished, I've worked for despite the naysayers and everyone who has underestimated me. I recognize uh, this will be the biggest fight uh, yet, but as I have stated throughout this whole process, I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. Now, over half of the U.S. Democratic senators have called on Menendez to resign. Uh, His uh, fellow New Jersey senator, in fact, Cory Booker, issued a statement yesterday complimenting his work ethic and stating he must step down from the Senate 
as it is in Booker's words, not an admission of guilt, but an acknowledgement that holding public office often demands tremendous sacrifices at a great personal cost. Uh, The House Democratic Caucus Chair Pete Aguilar was asked whether the senator should resign during a press conference this morning. Let's listen to his answer. It doesn't bring me or any of us joy to say uh, that he should resign, uh, but he should. Uh, for the betterment of the Democratic Party, uh, for the people of New Jersey, it's better that he fights this trial um, outside of the halls of Congress. Uh, I'd also say that you know, Latinos face you know, barriers and discrimination uh, across the board in so many categories, including in our uh, justice system. This is not that. Uh, what we read in the indictment and the charges um, We should not conflate uh, the discrimination uh, and the issues and the barriers that Latinos have in the justice system uh, and across uh, industries uh, to um, uh, to what we see there today and the struggles uh, that Latinos face and the barriers that they face in so many ways. Uh, But it would be best if he if he resigned. Representative Pete Aguilar uh, there recorded earlier today. Uh, Chris, let's go to you first on this. Uh, the dam appears to be breaking on Menendez when it is when it is own party. Uh, what do you see happening? Well, yeah, and you know, I think this is one of those cases where this reflects what most people dislike the most about politics, what they dislike the most about their perceptions of Congress in terms of that it's it's big money that members of Congress there's the perception that they're in it for their own self-interest um, you know I think you know also something to think about here is how quickly the Democrats are calling for his resignation you, you know you mentioned uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey Governor Murphy from New Jersey um, mm-hmm. you know part of this there may be a political calculation here in terms of the presidential election for 2024 in terms of do Democrats want to take a hard stance on this and not and, and be able to go into that election being able to say that they take a hard stance against any member of their party who's indicted should not be running for public office, given the four indictments against the former president who is who is the leading candidate for the Republican nomination. So I think there's that contrast to think about going into 2024. But again, you know, Americans' attitudes toward Congress have been declining for the last, you know, three decades. We know that approval of Congress is, is extremely low in the, you know, in the teens to 20 percent. Uh, the perception that government officials are, quote, crooked. We see that in polling from Pew Research Center from National Election Studies, where two-thirds to 70% of Americans think that members of Congress are engaging in corrupt activities. And so I think the, part of the Democratic response here is is trying to get around this, to, mo- to move past this as quickly as possible, because they're looking at 2024 as an election with still a lot of uncertainty around it, whether or not, you know, how strong are, is the president going to be going into 2024, President Biden? Um, what sort of coattails is he going to have? And how difficult is it going to be for the Democratic Party to try to retain control of the U.S. Senate, given that uncertainty surrounding the election? Yeah, uh, so much there that you mentioned, Chris. Um, uh, unpack your thoughts for us, uh, Rachel. Well, I agree with all of that. I mean, this is just from a you know, pure spectacle perspective. How can you get better than like 13 gold bars sitting in a house (laughs) in New Jersey? Um, Remember as well that Bob Menendez has been indicted before um, and was on trial in 2017. He survived that. Uh, There was a hung jury in that case. It appears that, you know, 
this arrangement that is now being alleged with the Egyptian government started just a few months after uh, that hung jury. And so, you know, this seems to be persistent. And, you know, I think Chris is absolutely right regarding the calculations uh, going into the 2024 election. This differs from his past indictment because now there's a Democratic governor who will appoint a Democratic replacement who could run as an incumbent. Um, and so just from a pure kind of party control of of the Senate, just from that perspective, Democrats are in a very different circumstance here than they were when they when they did this last time with Senator Menendez. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Rachel, just to, to, to spell out a little bit what you just referred to, let's suppose Menendez in the coming days does step down. He gives no indication uh, that he's going to do that. But we would have uh, an appointed Democratic senator uh, in New Jersey uh, and many months for New Jerseyans to to get to know that person so that he wouldn't be an incumbent, he or she, but it, it would give an advantage in the election. Right, exactly. They would already be, whoever this would be, they'd already be sitting in the U.S. Senate. So while they wouldn't be uh, technically an incumbent, they would run effectively as somebody who's already serving in that seat. So there'd be a level of familiarity um, for voters. And that's, I think, seen as a much, you know, much better political circumstance for 2024 than having Senator Menendez running for re-election, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or, or as a sitting senator and having that messaging out there, um, you know, just politically, you can see why Senate Democrats right now are far more eager to uh, to step up and and say, we don't tolerate this in our party. Yeah. We're not doing this this time around, right? Because the yeah. last time he was indicted, Chris Christie was governor of New Jersey and would have potentially selected, likely selected a Republican um, to to serve. And that was far less attractive to Democrats. Yeah. So we do know that for statewide offices, New Jersey can elect a Republican. You just named Chris Christie. So um, I don't know, you know, I was um, really transitioned, changed uh, in the last 10, 15 years uh, to solidly Republican. Uh, uh, Rachel, uh, would there still be a fear that, you know, Democrats would not would not take this Senate seat uh, um, unless Menendez um, has um, uh, does does decide to resign and and give an appointed uh, senator a, a chance, a Democratic senator? I mean, I don't think it's particularly likely per se, but it's possible, right? It depends. This has a long way to go in terms of unfolding from here, right? This is a very fast-moving story. Um, for those who pay attention to the news, we just started hearing about this over the weekend. Um, so as details come out and, you know, as as a trial proceeds, um, you know, I think Democrats see a risk associated with that. Um, they have a sitting Democratic senator in a narrowly, you know, in a narrow majority um, who who's under indictment. And it doesn't look good for anybody, particularly as Chris noted, particularly when the Democrats are trying to draw this very clear line in saying, you know what, you know, Donald Trump, the leader of the Republican Party, you know, he's been indicted on all these criminal counts. He's the problem. Uh, we don't do that in our party. Um, and so, right. you know, right. that's and a I message think, uh, they want to be able to use. 
And I think, Rachel, perhaps you saw it on the news, too. I think um, uh, Speaker McCarthy asked about this, of course, saying that uh, Menendez should step down, should resign, but then asked on the heels of that about George Santos indicted as well. And then um, uh, not calling for that. <laughs> resignation. <Yeah. laughs> so, so having to back backpedal a little bit. A little Politics bit, bit is powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes hard to be consistent. We'll be back with a little more of our Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa. And when we come back, uh, we'll uh, talk about um, yesterday the New York Supreme Store state Supreme Court issuing a a ruling that if stands would have major consequences uh, for Donald Trump. This is part of the New York Attorney General's civil case against Donald Trump. Uh, Back to Trump's legal woes when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, a Politics Wednesday edition of our program with Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa. And you, if you choose to join us, you can email us a question, uh, river to river at iowapublicradio.org or call 1-866-780-9100. Let's uh, dig into the latest uh, chapter in legal woes for former President Trump, uh, a New York State Supreme Court judge issuing a ruling uh, that could have major consequences for him. It comes as a part, uh, just to explain a little bit of the backdrop, the New York Attorney General's civil case. This one is not an, uh, a criminal case. He's four times criminally indicted, but this is a civil case against Donald Trump. The Eternal, Attorney General, Letitia James, accusing the former president of fraudulently overstating the value of his assets on financial statements by as much as $2.2 billion, billion a year in order to um, receive some favorable terms on loans and benefits. Now, in yesterday's ruling, this judge, Arthur F. Engoron, agreed that Trump committed fraud when he sent those statements to banks and insurance firms, um, inflating uh, those numbers. The trial in this case, could start as soon as Monday. Uh, if Trump uh, does not successfully have this ruling reversed before that time, this will then largely focus, um, from my reading, on the size of the penalty against former President uh, Trump, uh, the New York Attorney General, seeking a fine of $250 million. A lawyer for the former president indicated he would appeal the decision, and we're expecting the appeals court uh, to rule on this uh, as soon as tomorrow, Thursday. So, Chris, to you first on this. In effect, uh, help us understand. The judge ruled that no trial necessary to determine that Trump's financial statements were fraudulent. Right. Yes. And as you said, you know, the, the trial that would start Monday would essentially determine the size of the penalty. Uh, for for the fraud that the that the judge uh, ruled on in this case, um, you know, again, this is when you when you think about these these cases, and as you mentioned, this is a civil case different than the four criminal indictments um, currently against the former president. But again, 
the question politically, right? It, it, to what extent does this matter? Does this does this cut into um, you know the support for the former president within the Republican electorate? Um, obviously, this is a, again a, a different case. This this really cuts against kind of the the persona of the former president as w- what he likes to talk about in terms of being a great business person. Um, you know, all of his his business dealings and, and so forth. This really cuts to the core of that, but. You know, so far what we've seen in poll after poll following the four criminal indictments is that there really has not been a, a significant negative effect in terms of his standing within the Republican Party. I mean, you, you look at his standing today going into the you know second presidential debate, which he's not going to participate in. He, he, he still leads, you know, Governor uh, DeSantis by 25, 30 percentage points. So I think in terms of public opinion, it's hard to know if there is going to be a, a significant negative effect here. There's certainly financially is a potentially big effect and and uh, a considerable effect in terms of his his properties in New York City. So that will be part of it. But I, you know, on public opinion, I, I think it's it's hard to know what we've seen in public opinion of the president so far the last three years is that voters' attitudes are relatively settled on what they think about the the character of the former president um, and his actions. Mm-hmm. If four criminal indictments don't dent this president's popularity among his base, uh, Rachel, well, does this ha- have any effect in your view? You know, I really don't know. I, if we were to go back and we were currently living in 2015 when Donald Trump was first kind of entering politics and so much of his brand defined by his success in business, his wealth, his you know, this this broad business empire that he had built. And that was such a strong case. And you heard so many people who were kind of considering options. And they said, you know, Donald Trump can't be bought and sold. Donald Trump has his own wealth. He's a self-made man, right? Like mm-hmm. that was so central to initial appeals and people kind of politically getting to know Trump. And I think at that point, this could have made a really significant dent. Um you know, there, there are some claims that, that have been uncovered in this case that are just literally ludicrous. Um, and, and the judge called them out and said, you know, this is a persistent pattern of fraud. Um, and, and, and and called them out and actually fined the lawyers for making exactly, the, same, yes. the same discredited arguments. He said, you cannot come into to a court and, and make and, the same argument that we've already ruled on. That exactly. Is, discredited, right? Yeah. He says, borderline frivolous. I can't, like, you, you can't do this. So find the lawyers, $7,500 each. Um, and, I mean, just a scathing opinion in this case. Um, and ruling, you know, we don't even have to like, go through a more formalized trial. It's a bench trial. I'm the judge. I'm going to grant the sub- partial summary judgment. And I'm going to say, yeah, it's pretty obvious. You've lied on all of these financial documents and you've gotten favorable terms on loans and insurance and you've reported – you've incorrectly reported things to the IRS. Like it's persistent and it lasted for more than a decade. Um, you know, that would really if, – if Donald Trump in his political – you know, his early political days, if this had come down, that I think really would have – been a significant undermining of his appeal. But we're at a point now where Donald Trump's brand is it's bigger than his business acumen, right? It 
He has a, a political standing and a base and an ability to, you know, convince people um, that he's being attacked wrongly. Remember that, I mean, he was actually brought in for a deposition on this case and he mm-hmm. he wouldn't answer any questions. He basically invoked the Fifth Amendment uh, against self-incrimination. That's remarkable. Uh, and yet it didn't change uh, levels of support for him. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard for me to envision that this has any real effect on those people who already support him. If you've just joined us, it's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Rachel Caulfield, you heard just there, professor of political science at Drake University in Des Moines. Chris Larimer, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Let's move on to the looming government uh, shutdown. Uh, the Senate uh, moving forward uh, on a deal to avert a government shutdown. We heard a little clip of U.S. Senator Charles Grassley on board with this, trying to keep the government uh, funded. Um, yesterday, this bipartisan deal in the Senate um, would fund the government for six weeks. Uh, without additional funding, the government will shut down this weekend. Uh, this bipartisan Senate deal uh, cleared a procedural hurdle last night, uh, passing 77 to 19, um, six weeks uh, of uh, additional government funding with additional money, I understand, for Ukraine, also domestic disaster relief. Rachel, let's start with you. I started with Chris on the two other stories. Let's start. <laughs> we stay with you. Explain the position now. More pressure on the U.S. House, right? And Kevin McCarthy as the clock ticks towards the government shutdown on September 30th. Yeah, this has always been a story of the U.S. House. So in order to keep the government funded, basically Congress has to pass 12 separate appropriations bills for the various operations of government. The Senate has been chugging right along, working together, figuring out their 12 bills. They're set. They're ready to go. And that's largely based on an agreement that Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy reached last May when they were dealing with the debt ceiling debate. Um the House, meanwhile, uh, Kevin McCarthy has a you know divided caucus. He's got some Republican hardliners who want to cut further than what was agreed to in May. And he wants to get this through the House without it becoming a collaborative, oh, I'll work with the Democrats and get it together kind of thing. Uh, so he wants to keep his caucus together. That means bowing to the demands of some of these hardliners on the right. Um, and he has found it incredibly difficult to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. So the House has really, you know, just as an example, there are four big bills that he's really focused attention on. Those four bills contain about 72 percent of discretionary spending. Um, so big chunk of the actual, you know, actual debate here is contained in those four bills. He tried to uh, put them out on the floor last week. And uh, the first step in doing that is to pass what they call a rule. Um, And he had to pull it because he didn't have a majority of votes to pass it. Uh, So procedurally, he was dead in the water. He tried twice last week to do this and failed both times. Remember also, Kevin McCarthy continues to have this nagging, persistent problem, which is that as a condition of becoming speaker, he allowed that the threshold to bring a motion to remove him from the speakership be lowered so that any single member of his conference 
can can motion to remove him as speaker. And and so he's really got to keep everything together. Nobody in Washington is having a worse week right now than Kevin McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Of course, <laughs> a shutdown at the end of this week it could wreak some havoc on federally funded programs, Medicare services, passport operations, many other things. Not to mention also that these shutdowns, shutting down the massive government and then at some point restarting it, Chris, just uh, cost us mega money here in the U.S., doesn't it? It does. Uh, you know, billions of dollars in, in terms of lost revenue for, um, you know, if you think of national parks, there's the administrative work of, of trying to catch back up to um, right. w- when the shutdown occurs, you know, you know processing everything in terms of, of, of back pay. And, you know, and, and just added uncertainty to the overall U.S. economy, right, that this keeps happening, um, you know, can shake the economy a little bit. And, and for investors, for folks who are, you know, relying on savings or, rely, you know, close to retirement where they see the stock market uh, tumbling as a result of this, that, that's pretty troublesome. And, and, it's, and it's unfortunately become the norm when it comes to the federal budget process. You know, the Government Accountability Office... Um, you know, in a report leading up to this, talked about just three times in the last 47 years have they completed all 12 of those appropriation bills that, that Rachel mentioned on time. The last time was in 1997. And since that time, we've had, a, according to the Peterson Foundation, 131 continuing resolutions. In other words, not since 1997, the federal government has not been able to get the budget bills done on time by September 30th. And, and you know, and, and obviously that coincides with what we've talked about before on the show in terms of just the, the, the hyper-partisanship, how polarized things are um, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. at this point. And so it's when people say the budget process is broken at the federal level, that this is what they're talking about, that we cannot get to a point where those 12 budget bills are passed on time. We continue to get up to this point and then either a continuing resolution or, or in the worst case, a, a government shutdown. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, to you on this, you know, would it be possible um, to just have, you know, Kevin McCarthy um, mulling over at least turning to Democrats to get the necessary votes here? (laughs) Is it simply a matter of him not wanting to lose the speakership, which I guess he most certainly would? (laughs) Um, But but, I mean, that's that's what this is about or is it about something more? Well, On one level, that's exactly what this is about. Um, You know, he has a a group of Democrats and moderate Republicans in the House who would be happy to take up the Senate bill immediately and to pass it easily. Now, that only gives them, you know, this is the continuing resolution. So it's a, you know, a temporary spending measure while they continue to, you know, try to pass these 12 spending bills. on another hand, you know, this, this is a kind of bigger story about, I think, the the partisan polarization of Congress, the, the centralization of power within the speakership, um, which we've seen over time, and Kevin McCarthy's kind of fraught relationship with a very fractious Republican majority in the House. You know, they want to be able to maintain their majority in the House. It's a very narrow majority. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of his members really want the opportunity to stand up and, you know, say on principle, I will not 
uh, cooperate with Democrats. I will not engage in higher spending. I will cut the federal budget. I will protect the border. And the border is actually a really important part of this. Kevin McCarthy, he did end up being able to bring those four bills onto the floor last night. Um, So he was successful in getting that majority vote. His hope is that that provides a little bit of momentum. But he has said that he will bring his own continuing resolution to the floor on Friday, and it will include provisions for border security um, and, yeah, and immigration restrictions. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the the Republicans have a clear message here. They want to be able to say, well, Joe Biden needs to, you know, needs to agree to this or – you know, we're not we're not going to sign on. Mm-hmm. Um, Ukraine figures into this, Chris. Um, how much does the support for Ukraine um, figure into this debate um, over the shutdown? I understand that several, not not the entire amount uh, that wish is wished for by Biden and the Democrats, but some money is here uh, for <laughs> to continue the war in Ukraine, helping that country. Yeah, roughly six billion of the the twenty five billion that the, the the Biden administration is is requesting as part of this continuing resolution that the the Senate passed last night, or the or would the continuing resolution that they're looking to pass now that they've um, passed the closure uh, motion from last night. Uh, yeah, so that's a that's part of it. That's certainly one of the the battles within the House that that Rachel was talking about between uh, the Speaker and you know the House Freedom Caucus, uh, and and the, the spending on Ukraine uh, the has the politics of that have increased considerably over the last several weeks um, and in last couple of months, really, where you've started to hear more Republicans come out about the extent to which we should continue funding, uh, providing uh, money for Ukraine and its defense again with the war with Russia. Um, you know, I, I think overall spending levels, um, the border are probably still, priorities for for the house freedom caucus but certainly any extra spending at this point seems to be um you know targeted by the house freedom caucus and and what they're really pushing back on because they really are trying to cut federal spending overall but the way that they're trying to do this and and, and rachel alluded to this is really trying to get to some sort of balance but only trying to balance through discretionary spending which you really can't do with the federal government the federal government you know discretionary spending makes up such a small portion of the overall federal budget to try to do that with discretionary spending is is really difficult but that's where you're seeing a lot of pushback um what among the more conservative members in the house mm-hmm. and and we have um, members um, well-known members Rand paul senator Rand paul of kentucky saying there's no national security interest for us in ukraine um uh, and he go, went on in this quote to say, even if it were uh, a national security interest, it would be trumped by the fact that we have no money. Uh, we have Senator Josh Hawley, a uh, Republican from uh, uh, Missouri, saying the focus on Ukraine is a distraction for more urgent threats to the U.S. as he sees it, uh, the rise and influence of China. Okay, we'll leave that for now. When we come back with Rachel and Chris, we want to talk about uh, President Biden's uh, visit yesterday to uh, join striking auto workers in Michigan, marking what appears to be the first time a sitting president has ever visited a picket line. Uh, that's when we return with this Politics Wednesday edition. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from RP- IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And we are back midstream in this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with our political scientists this week, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University. Let's uh, move on to what President Biden was up to yesterday, joining a strike uh, with auto workers in Michigan, uh, appearing to be the first time a sitting president has ever visited a picket line. Um, Auto companies doing well. Uh, Biden told dozens of workers outside of a General Motors facility that employs more than 200 people in Belleville, Michigan. This is outside of Detroit. Let's listen to him. It's a little hard to hear. He's uh, the president is speaking into a bullhorn on the picket line at a General Motors parts distribution warehouse in Van Buren Township, Michigan. Uh, Let's listen to his short remarks. The fact of the matter is that you guys, UAW, you saved the automobile industry back in 2008 and before. Made a lot of sacrifices. Gave up a lot. And the companies were in trouble. But now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. Stick with it. Because you deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. Let's get it! President Biden yesterday in Michigan. Um, now, uh, Donald Trump scheduled to give a primetime speech tonight instead of attending the second Republican primary debate. Um, Trump in Michigan as well. The United Auto Workers president, Sean Fain, says he won't meet with former President Trump during his Detroit visit, to quote him, uh, according to CNN. I don't think the man has any bit of care about what our workers stand for, what the working class uh, stands for. Chris, this is an extraordinary show of support for workers demanding better wages by uh, the sitting president. Talk about the significance of Joe Biden joining the picket line um, and the fight over um, uh, for, for organized labor, citing that. This is unprecedented to see a sitting president out there, you know, with a bullhorn out there on the picket line. Um, addressing striking workers. Um, you know, we heard throughout the 2020 presidential campaign, Joe Biden talking about how he was going to be the most pro, quote, pro-union president ever. Um, and clearly, you know, trying to, to live up to that with this visit yesterday. Um, and, you know, obviously, the, you know, again, you think about the politics of this, this, the political strategy here involved, right? You're talking about Michigan, a battleground state. You're talking about the United Auto Workers who have not, officially endorsed President Biden yet, but certainly this is going to go a long way toward that. And, you know, that you would expect to see campaign ads, you know, with some of the the optics from yesterday uh, mm-hmm. as part of that ad. So clearly, you know, there, there's there are, there's a political calculation here, too, where where the president is really trying to drum up support from from union workers. But just to go out there and do that now, you know, looking ahead, you know, there have been strikes that have been going on around the country at, at this point, what sort of precedent does this set? Does he start to do the, you know, does the president go out to every, you know, strike? Presumably he's not going to do that, but it, obviously making a concerted effort to court um, or organize labor, as you said, and, and union workers. 
Yeah. And on the, on the other side here, we have Donald Trump uh, also in Michigan. Uh, Rachel, to you on this. And, and put it in the context, please, of what's happened. You know, the, the unions, uh, union members, working class folk in our country, if I can put it that way, uh, were more solidly in former times in the Democratic Party's camp. That has shifted. And what Donald Trump is trying to take advantage of that? Yeah, and and it paid off for him in 2016, um, right? He he won Michigan in particular by just under 11,000 votes, um, and that that was key to you know that strategy of breaking the blue wall in 2016. Labor has traditionally been democratic, um, but with the decline of labor unions, um, and it's important to note that. Uh, when Donald Trump shows up in Michigan uh, and gives remarks this evening as his counter-programming, he will do so at a non-union shop. Um, there's a, you know, there's a sense that Donald Trump's brand of populism really appeals to working-class voters, some of whom undoubtedly are in union households. You know, Joe Biden. In I went back and looked at some of the exit polls from 2020, um, and. Among those who lived in union households, those made up about 21 percent of voters and 56 percent of them voted for Joe Biden. Um, Among non-union households, uh, which made up about 79 percent of people, it was very evenly split, 49 percent Joe Biden, 50 percent Donald Trump. Um, You know, Biden and Trump both want to really activate that base of voters. Some people have suggested that this is basically a divide between the kind of union management and the the workers, uh, that the workers are more inclined to support Donald Trump. They really, you know, his his message about EVs in particular really resonates with them Um, and that the management is more likely to support Joe Biden. But they're, you know, this is a state that can be very narrowly decided, and both of them really want to court this crucial base of voters in Michigan, because Michigan's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move to what's happening tonight. Uh, seven Republican presidential candidates, none of them named Donald Trump. Or uh, Asa Hutchinson. <laughs> or Asa Hutchinson. That's right. He was None in the first of them debate. Will be named Asa Hutchinson <laughs> <laughs> or Donald Trump. They're gathering tonight. I'll name them all right here uh, this evening. And I want to talk about this venue too because it's at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California. This is the second GOP presidential primary debate uh, scheduled to participate. Uh, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former UN Ambassador um, uh, Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, and Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina. Uh, Chris, what, who, and what will you be watching tonight? Well, I think first and foremost, just looking at Governor DeSantis, you know, so far what we saw with the first debate, I think there was a lot of there were questions about could he make up ground on the former president, Donald Trump, who is clearly leading in just about every poll we see and and by a considerable margin, you know, 20 to to 30 percentage points over over DeSantis for the Republican nomination. And so there were questions going into that first debate. Could Governor DeSantis do something to try to 
to move up in the polls to kind of try to break through that lead. And what we saw was that he, he really didn't do anything. He was he was sort of quiet there. You know, in terms of speaking time, he was down compared to you know Nikki Haley, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, um, and really didn't get into a lot of the back and forth that we saw with some of the other candidates. So I think. One of the things to watch tonight, at least for me, is, to, you know, does Governor DeSantis come out stronger? Does he try to have more speaking time? Does he try to directly engage um, some of the other candidates on, on on stage tonight? And then I think also, you know, looking at, uh, you know, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, do they try to build on what they were doing in that in that first debate in terms of the amount of speaking time and really drawing contrast with some of the other candidates on stage with Nikki Haley, you know, drawing contrast with with, with Pence, with Vivek Ramaswamy, Mike Pence trying to defend his positions um, that he took during the Trump administration, Nikki Haley being pretty outspoken in her criticism of the the Trump-Pence administration. So those are, those are some of the things I'll be watching for tonight. Mm-hmm. And you, Rachel? Well, I think there are two candidates who have the potential to come up a little bit more still, and that's Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. So I'll be keeping an eye on them. Um, but... You know, I, we saw in the last debate, a lot of candidates at this stage in the race are really focused on making their own case, the affirmative case for why voters should like them. But to date, none of the candidates have really, aside from Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, who will not be there, none of them have taken on Donald Trump in and kind of squarely said, not just here's why it should be me, but here's why it shouldn't be Donald Trump, that persuasive piece has been missing. I think tonight's debate's a little interesting compared to our last debate because it's in Simi Valley, California. It's a totally different audience that might be more receptive to some of those claims. So I'll be looking to see which candidates might be willing to take that chance. Right. And because it is um, uh, in the Reagan um, Presidential um, Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California, we can talk, you know, the Reagan era GOP base was made up of a different base than this one. Uh, Right, Rachel? Fiscal conservatives um, wanting to cut taxes uh, and barriers on free trade. Much of the party now wants to impose steep tariffs to limit global trade, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's really animated by a lot of those, you know, culture war issues. And certainly culture war issues were a central piece of the 1980 campaign, particularly regarding abortion, but not nearly to the extent that we see now, right? The, the base of the Republican Party in Reagan's day was very different, um, and it was heavily oriented towards, you know, business, uh, supporting supporting business and, um, <laughs> and business interests. And, and that's less true now. Um, you know, now Donald Trump's populism has really altered the messaging and the core policy commitments of that Reagan coalition. But California is also just a different state than Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, let's get to an email question or two. Gary in Davenport writes, please please give me your take on Vivek Ramaswamy's 2021 authored book, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Uh, the Gary says he seems to be attacking the aspect of capitalism that is rather mainstream now. So odd for a successful capitalist to use this view in his political campaign. Um, Chris, your your observations about Vivek Ramaswamy, we're, of course, we're, we're looking to see if Ramaswamy will steal the show again, as he seemed to do to a couple weeks ago. 
Yeah, and, and and it was interesting to see his the case that he made during that first debate. Really, you know, he was talking about um, you know President Trump, uh, former President Trump, talking about how in Vivek Ramaswamy's opinion, you know, how how well uh, the former president did, but really not separating himself from the former president, right? So he was he was clearly. Uh, you know, making that case very strongly, really engaged with several of the other candidates to try to raise his profile a little bit. Um, I, you know, since that time, we, we really haven't seen a sustained effect in terms of the polling um, and his likelihood of, of becoming the nominee. But, um, you know, I, I would expect probably a somewhat similar performance tonight where he's going to come out and, and engage with some of the other candidates and, and try to, you know, make his claim that he could be the strongest candidate. And, he, and you know, you'd expect him to continue to talk about how he's the, quote, outsider of all the candidates, that he's not someone that's in elected yeah. office. We know that that's an appeal that many candidates try to make. And so that's that's what you would expect to see again tonight. Yeah. Um, on paper, a former vice president should be well, I don't think we've mentioned him in this portion of the program, <laughs> right? And the, the, one of the one of the questions I saw raised in the press that made me chuckle, but also was insightful. Uh, comment on this: uh, the, the 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 question was, what year is Pence running in? <laughs> so, so why hasn't Mike Pence done better than he has, uh, at least according to polling? There's a date on the calendar for that. It's January 6th. <laughs> okay. I mean, the, the base of the Republican Party contains enough people who see Mike Pence as having fundamentally failed their movement. Um, and, and so, you know, Mike Pence has wanted to be president for a long time. And he, I think, felt that he was doing everything right. And by any conventional measure, he was. And then January 6th happened. And it kind of blew up his political career, I think. He's really struggling on the campaign trail to find a message that resonates with the current Republican base and allows him to get past those people who just really despise him, quite frankly, um, for for having you know, not supported mm-hmm. the president on January 6th. Yeah. We have just a couple minutes left, and, and both of you are in the classroom. You are um, working with, teaching, hearing feedback from the youngest generation of voters, uh, who are obviously, because they're in your classes, are very interested in politics. <laughs> I, I wonder, uh, to you first, Rachel, wondering how, how you're dealing with the current political news in your classrooms. Loads to talk about. Does this shape your, your, your classes? It must do that enormously. It always does. Uh, I think that's the nature of a political science classroom. And, you know, I think Chris and I both would, would tell you, you know, we have a lot of experience navigating these issues in the classroom and working with students who are interested on both sides of the aisle. This generation is less committed to institutions than, than prior generations have been, and that's true across the board. But for those interested in politics, they have deep commitments, policy commitments, and I've been really impressed by the degree to which they are still willing to work together and have friendships with people that they disagree with. And I wish that could be exported on a broader scale, but mm. at least in my classroom, it's still it's still working. <laughs> Chris, the final 30, 40 seconds to you, please. Yeah, no, I think that was well well said by by Rachel, and certainly would echo that. I, you know, I think in terms of the some of the policy classes that I teach, 
Um, you know, part of it is is really trying to make sure students still have have faith in the process. And so, if I'm you know if I'm teaching a policy class or even a public budgeting class, and we, we were talking right. about the, the the federal budget process, you know that they they've come up in an era where it's it is completely broken. And so, trying to talk about how how you get through that, what the structure is supposed to look like, what how the institutions are supposed to look, and, and trying to make sure that there's you know maintaining that faith going forward. Yeah, maintaining the faith, the hope for the future, that must be a challenge, mm-hmm. Chris. To, um, if, um, are, are, are your students generally optimistic about our political landscape, or I, do, they need, do they need a boost there? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think they're generally optimistic, but I think there, there are certainly some frustrations there. But that's why it's important to talk about you know, the, the institutions, the rules, the structures, and how this can work, and that things change with each election cycle. Okay, very good. Uh, Chris Larimer, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa uh, in our Cedar Falls studio. Rachel Caulfield, professor of political science at Drake uh, University in Des Moines. Rachel and Chris, a delightful hour. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow on this program, um, Alan Page, the former NFL defensive lineman, mainly for the Vikings. He's also the first African-American Supreme Court justice in the state of Minnesota. Tomorrow on this program, highlights from my conversation with him last night on stage at Hancher Auditorium in Iowa City. About a thousand participants in that. Uh, reflections on his life and our country's current challenges from Justice Alan Page. What a remarkable individual. Um, I hope you'll tune in for that tomorrow on the program. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. Thanks again for such a successful fun drive. Uh, We owe a lot to you, and we'll keep on working. Thanks for joining us.